Well, good morning to everyone. A couple of weeks ago, I stated that I would never again invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4. So please turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Seven sermons on Luke 4. And today we leave it behind and draw out some of the implications of what we have seen in that chapter. But just before we get to Luke chapter 9, I want to begin with just a few, a few remarks and listen closely to these words as we, as we set the stage for what we're going to do today, Lord willing, next Sunday and the Sunday after. Uh, we laugh when we hear a good joke. At least most of us do, right? We laugh when we hear a good joke. We cry when we read a sad story. We are encouraged when we witness acts of kindness. And we are enraged when we witness acts of cruelty. We are awestruck when we gaze into the heaven's heights or the ocean's depths. We are inspired when we see the artist's sculpture or hear the musician's sonata. Uh, these things merit what? A response. I submit to you that uh, the same is true when it comes to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we come face to face with the Lord Jesus. And what the Lord Jesus reveals there concerning himself merits a response. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It merits a response. And in the rest of his narrative, gospel account, uh, Luke basically describes a worthy response. And it is threefold. We can sum it up in three words. Faith repentance, and self-denial. And today we're going to turn our attention to the first of these words, uh, the first part of a worthy response to who the Lord Jesus is. And we are going to unpack what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Most of us are familiar with the word faith. I'm assuming most of us have a fairly good idea, a fairly good notion of what we mean when we use the word faith. I am mindful of an incident. I was 14 years of age. It stands out in my memory. As a matter of fact, the entire trip stands out in my memory because it was the last time I, my parents, my two sisters, traveled as a family to the old country, to Britain. And we were in Northern Ireland for a few days visiting family. And we went to the coast, a little town called Carrick Areed, a fishing village. And you could walk to the edge, the cliff's edge, and peer down, I don't know how many feet, to the raging ocean and rocks below, and sitting just off the coast, jutting from the ocean's depths, 
uh, stood this rock. And there was a walking bridge fixed between that rock and the mainland. A little bridge made out of wooden planks and rope. And a sign planted right there to the entranceway to this bridge declaring, uh, it's been tested, it's safe, no problems here. I understood the sign. Is that faith? By itself, it is not. I understood the sign, what it was saying. But on its own, that was not faith. I agreed with the sign. Turned to my two sisters and encouraged them to walk across the bridge. (laughs) I agreed with it. But was that faith? No. It was not faith until I actually did what? Walked across the bridge. Understanding the sign was important. Agreeing with the sign was necessary. But understanding it and agreeing with it completely useless until I actually walked across it. That is what it means to believe. That is the essence of faith. And Luke, in his gospel account, unpacks this idea of what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus. If you were hoping for a three-point sermon this morning, you are in the wrong place. Because it is going to be a ten-point sermon. Again, as we unpack, come to grips with faith. This worthy response to who the Lord Jesus is, who he proclaims to be, and why he came. And so I'm going to point us to 10 different texts in Luke and give us 10 different points or components or aspects or characteristics of faith. Here's number one, quickly. No need to turn to this passage because we're not going to spend much time there. Characteristic number one, faith is not found in everyone. Need to be clear on that. Faith is not found in everyone. And so in chapter 18, verse 8, no need to turn there. Just listen to these words. Jesus declares, when the Son of Man comes, so when I return, will he find faith on the earth? Will he? More to the point, More to the point, will he find faith in you? Will he find faith in me? This question concerns each and every one of us because it is the difference between life and death, heaven and hell. But the reality is this. Faith is not found in everyone, but some. First thing we must be very clear on. Second point is this, and you found Luke chapter 9, right? Faith is fixed on Jesus. And so you found Luke chapter 9. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 18. Faith is fixed on Jesus. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they come up with three possibilities. They answered, verse 19, uh, John the Baptist. 
That's how some people are answering that question. Who, who is Jesus? Well, some think you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist is already dead. Herod has seen to that. Many of us are familiar with the, with the details, right? The gory details. And uh, John the Baptist is long dead. But when John the Baptist hears, uh, when Herod hears of Jesus, he actually thinks it might be John the Baptist come back from the dead. And apparently some people have kind of bought into that notion as well. And so who do the crowds say that I am? Well, well, some are following Herod and his thinking that you're actually John the Baptist. But others, what do they say? Elijah. Why Elijah? Because if you turn to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, we read that Elijah is going to come before the day of the Lord. And so some say that, uh, well, you're Elijah and the day of the Lord is upon us. And others say that you are one of the prophets of old. Jeremiah was a very popular idea, very popular notion. Why? Because according to Jewish tradition, uh, Jeremiah had hid the Ark of the Covenant during the Babylonian invasion. And Jeremiah was going to return to show where that Ark had been hidden prior to the coming of the day of the Lord. And so some think you're Jeremiah or some think you're one of the prophets. The point is this, very few people actually think he is the Christ. And so verse 20, he said to them, that is his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. What does Christ mean? Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Anointed, anointed, anointed. We had seven sermons on it, folks. Anointed. It should drive us back where? Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, christened me. He has declared, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I have been anointed by the Spirit of God. I am the one promised of old, the promised deliverer, the promised rescuer, the promised savior, the son of God come in the flesh. Peter declares that you are the Christ of God. And the Lord Jesus in verse 21, what does he do? He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the son of man, a reference to himself, the son of man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Why? Because in the language of Isaiah 53, verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. His death was not purposeless. It was purposeful. It was intentional. The son of God made incarnate the Lord's anointed among us. And he had come for a very specific purpose to fulfill a very specific mission to bear the iniquities, the sins, the transgressions of his people in his body upon the cross. There you have the object of faith. Faith is not void. Faith is not merely a strong feeling, a strong emotion, wishful thinking. No, faith is fixed on an object. And in this case, it is fixed on who Jesus is, his person, the Christ of God. And it is fixed on why Jesus came, his work, to suffer, to bear the iniquities of his people. That's point number two. Here's point number three. 
No need to turn to this text. We're going to be brief. Faith is much more than intellectual knowledge. Much, much more than intellectual knowledge. Back in Luke chapter 4, verse 40, verse 41, we read that the Lord Jesus is going about. He is preaching. He is declaring the gospel of the kingdom. He is healing those who are sick. He is casting out demons. And those demons, what are they declaring? You are the son of God. Why? Luke tells us. Because they knew that he was the Christ. They knew exactly who the Lord Jesus was. They knew precisely why the Lord Jesus had come. And yet that knowledge of Christ's person and Christ's work did them no good. Oh, how we must grasp this. We can agree with something intellectually while living contrary to it. Did you catch what I just said? We can agree with something, understand it, and even agree with it intellectually while living contrary to it. And so the young man understands, he knows, he recognizes, and he agrees that the sun's rays are extremely harmful. Skin cancer, all sorts of other ills. And yet this young man repeatedly, day after day, strips down, out he goes into the noonday sun and spends hours exposing his body to those rays. And so he is acting contrary, contrary, willfully contrary to what he understands and what he agrees with. We must grasp this Faith is more than intellectual knowledge. It includes knowledge. We must understand who Jesus is. We must understand why Jesus came. We must be very, be very clear on the purpose of his death upon Calvary's cross and the significant, significance of his resurrection from the dead. But there is a second essential component to saving faith, and it is this application. When we actually embrace it, we make it our own. It is the equivalent to a volitional commitment. And so a young man spies a young girl and fancies her and she fancies him and they decide they're going to get married. And he asks her to marry him, presents the ring, does everything else. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Very moving. Completely insignificant until he does what on his wedding day? Declares, I do. I do. It is a volitional commitment to her whereby they become one body, one flesh in the sight of God. That is the essence of faith. It is not enough to understand the gospel. The devil himself understands the gospel. It is not enough to agree with it. The demons agree with it. No, to truly believe, yes, is to understand. Yes, it is to agree. And then it is to act an act of will, the will to accept, to declare, I do whereby we appropriate who the Lord Jesus is, embracing him so that our lives are knit together with his. Much more than intellectual knowledge. The fourth component of faith is this. 
It is much more than enthusiasm. Much more than enthusiasm. And so in chapter 13, verse 17, don't turn there, no need. Just one phrase, extremely significant. Here it is. All the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. All the people rejoiced, got excited, were very enthusiastic as they saw, as they witnessed the glorious things that were done by him. Here is the question of questions. What good did it do them? It didn't do them any good at all. This is powerfully illustrated for us in Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower. Do you remember that? The sower goes out to sow. And the seed that he sows is the word of God, the proclamation of the gospel. There are four different soil types. I'm not going to get into them all. The one that serves our purpose in the moment is this. Uh, Some of the seed falls on rocky ground. Rocky ground. You can picture it. There isn't much dirt there. Just a fraction of an inch of soil. And the seed lands there. And it is enough, however, for the seed to immediately germinate and sprout and grow and make a good showing. But what happens? June in Texas happens. The sun comes out and it scorches that little sprout. Why? Because there's no soil. There's no depth. There is no root. And what's Christ's point? Who is he comparing these people to? He's saying, look, that scorching sun is like the difficulties you experience in life, the troubles and the cares of this world. And lots of people, when it comes to the gospel, they hear it and they get pretty excited. Lots of enthusiasm, plenty of joy, maybe even a few tears shed. But when things start to get difficult, life turns ugly. Trouble steps in, what happens? Away they go, that sprout is completely scorched, it disappears, why? Because there was never any root. How important for us to grasp that faith is more than enthusiasm. You want to know what one of the great dangers facing the church in our day is? Simply this. Many of those who accept the gospel on the basis of enthusiasm and then live a life completely contrary to it because of the scorching heat of the sun, the dilemma of the church is what? Many of those people stay in the church. And they stay in the church today because it costs them nothing to stay in the church. And there they are. They had a little enthusiasm 10, 20, 30 years ago. They understand the gospel. They agree with it, but they are not living their lives according to it. Christ is not Lord of their lives, mind, heart, and will. They are not living in submission to the word of God. They are not bearing any fruit, but there they are. These enthusiasts who are convinced they are Christians because of something that happened way back there in the past that they can still identify. Oh, what a danger. And how important for us to grasp that not only is faith much more than intellectual knowledge, it is also much more than enthusiasm. Point number five is this. Faith is turning from our merit to God's mercy. Look with me at Luke chapter 18. Faith is turning from our merit to God's mercy. Luke chapter 18, 
verse 9. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. So this was a very, very, if you're not familiar with the term, a very religious person. The other a tax collector. This was a very despised person who lived on the fringes of society, unaccepted, looked down upon, identified as a sinner. So two men, a Pharisee, a tax collector, also known as a publican, they go up to the temple to pray. Verse 11, the Pharisee, so this self-righteous man, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is faith. Faith turns from our merit. To God's mercy. The Pharisee is convinced that plenty of people are worse than him. The tax collector is convinced that no one is worse than him. There's the difference. There's saving faith. It is when I completely tear to shreds any notion of self righteousness or merit in me, something that catches God's attention, something that pleases God, something that sets me apart from you and sets me apart from you, something that makes me better, it's better, I'm not, I'm not saying really good, but just at least better than you in the sight of God. I tear that to shreds. And my cry is simply this, the cry of the tax collector, be merciful to me, a sinner. We either rest, I mean, you can boil it down to this statement. It's pretty straightforward. We either rest in our merit or in God's mercy. A really interesting pastoral, I don't want to belabor this, but a very interesting pastoral question is this. How do I know? How do I know if I'm resting in my merit or God's mercy? It's very simple. Just go back to verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's all you know. Are you a contemptuous person? Guess what? You're a self-righteous hypocrite. That's the text. I'm not making this stuff up. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying. That if I'm a contemptuous person, I, I, I'm a prickly pear, or even worse than that, a downright battle axe when it comes to my engagement with other people, my attitude toward others, the way I view them, the way I see them, the way I judge them, then I know nothing of the mercy of God. I am still resting in my own merit, and I have not been broken by the fact that I deserve nothing from God. All that I receive from him is a gift. Oh, the result is a very melting disposition, is it not? Especially when it comes to how we view others, how we treat others, how we handle others. Faith is turning from our merit to God's mercy. Here's number six, still in chapter 18. 
Faith is looking to God in childlike dependence. Faith is looking to God in childlike dependence. Verse 15, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them as the children to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's point number six. Faith is looking to God in childlike dependence. You grandparents, you parents, you uncles, you aunts, you can understand this. When that little child calls for you in the dead of night, two o'clock in the morning, right? Thunderclap or something. When that little child calls for you in the dead of night, when that little child climbs up into your lap, when he or she cries out for you after falling to the ground, when that little youngster takes you by the hand as he stumbles over uneven ground, as that little girl turns to you looking for protection, as you hear that little one say, either daddy, mommy, what are you witnessing? You are witnessing the way into the kingdom. It's wonderful. God has embedded the gospel in the relationship between child and adult. And that childlike dependence that exists is the faith of which the Lord Jesus is speaking here. I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child in just absolute childlike dependence shall not enter it. I was powerfully reminded of this very recently as I had the great pleasure of watching a number of children on a slip and slide. You can picture the chaos, right? Absolute bedlam. It's great. And one, one in particular, a father with his little 18, I think 18, maybe 19 month old daughter and showed up, stood at the top of this slide and he bravely sat down and put her in his lap, okay? There are limbs flailing everywhere. There is screaming that you, like you would not believe. Water gushing, a pool of water at the bottom, and off they went. And the look on this little girl's face, this toothless grin, as there she sat in her daddy's lap and made her way down this slip and slide. Not a care in the world, absolute trust, absolute confidence in the one who was holding her in his arms. That is childlike dependence. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That is the sixth mark of faith. Here's number seven. Faith is the means through which God justifies us. We're not finished with chapter 18. You may have picked up on the fact that as I read the former, the preceding verses, the story of the Pharisee, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, I neglected to read a verse. Verse 14, these two up, they go to the temple 
And the Pharisee prays, I thank you, I'm not like everybody else, especially this guy sitting right here. The tax collector, he prays what? Be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, the Lord Jesus gives his commentary on the entire incident. I tell you, this man, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, that simple prayer, be merciful to me, a sinner, went down to his house justified. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He went down to his house justified. When God justifies us, he does two things. First of all, he frees us from our sin because of Christ's merit. Secondly, he accepts us as just, as righteous because of Christ's merit. That's what it means to be justified. Again, to be justified, he frees us from sin, sin's penalty, sin's tyranny, because of Christ's merit. And he accepts us as just or righteous, whichever word, obedient, whichever word you prefer, because of or on account of Christ's merit. What is Christ's merit? It is his fulfilling the law. It is his suffering death in his body upon the cross. And it is his suffering the torment of hell in his soul. His merit. And on the basis of his merit, God justifies all who come to him with this simple prayer. Be merciful to me, a sinner. It's wonderfully illustrated, powerfully illustrated, and I'm not sure we always get it or appreciate it as we ought. The Lord's Supper. Many things going on at the Lord's Supper. But when we celebrate the supper and we see the cups and the, and the, and the bread up here, um, one of the most important things that's going on is this. We're being reminded that God offers us Jesus. He offers us Jesus. Jesus as the object of our faith. And that cup and that bread, what do we do? We take them by the hand, that's receiving them, and then we eat the bread, we drink the grape juice, and that is us appropriating those elements. And symbolically, we are declaring what? That that's how we live. We live because God offers us through the preaching, the proclamation of his word, his son, the Lord Jesus, and all the merit that goes along with him. And we receive it, reach out our hand, receive it like a gift. We take it and then we eat it. We appropriate it, him, the Lord Jesus, whereby he becomes one with us. It's beautiful, is it not? Faith is the means through which God justifies us. And he justifies us through faith because faith is the instrument he has appointed through which we simply stretch out our hand and receive the Lord Jesus, eat the Lord Jesus, figuratively speaking, meaning we appropriate him, embrace him, making him our own, declaring, I do. Here is the eighth point, Mark, of faith. It is the means through which God forgives us. No need to go there. Chapter 5, verse 20. Most of us are familiar with the story. 
It's of the paralytic and his friends. The Lord Jesus is speaking in the house, teaching. It is packed full of people. They can't get through the door. They can't get through any windows, inaccessible. So what do they do? They climb up onto the roof, make an opening, lower the paralytic on his little pallet and lay him at the feet of Jesus. Jesus seeing their faith. So what we read in Luke chapter five, declared what to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. Seeing their faith, he declared, your sins are forgiven. On what basis does he forgive his sins? Isaiah 53, verse 6, the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. What does it mean for God, for the Lord Jesus, to forgive us our sins? Isaiah 44, verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Whenever I hear that word mist, I get a very powerful memory from my childhood, my boyhood. Maybe 11 years of age, 12 years of age. Camp Minioe means nothing to you, does it? Camp Mediba. I mean, the, 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 I, oh, it, I, tears almost to my eyes thinking of those days and the weeks, the summers spent as a youngster in these camps in northern Ontario. And one of the most powerful memories are the canoe trips. And in that region of the world, the sun is cresting on the horizon as early as 5.15 in the morning. It's already breaking, entirely visible by 5.30. We are up at the crack of dawn. Everything's put away. Everything's in the canoes, and you push them out into the lake. Still, no wind, not even a ripple on the lake surface. The loons are calling one to another from one side of the lake to the other, and there is this thick mist just laying there over the surface of the water. As soon as the sun fully rises, fully visible, and that heat of a July morning in northern Ontario hits that mist, it evaporates almost in the blink of an eye. I have blotted out your sins like a mist. Forgiven your sins like a fog, like a, like a cloud, that which dissipates before the sun's heat. I no longer hold them against you. I no longer hold them against your account. I no longer remember them unto your condemnation. And I no longer hold them against you because I have laid all your sins on him. And he has borne the penalty in full. I receive this gift through faith. And when I receive it through faith, I receive the Lord Jesus. I have this absolute assurance that this is the means and the only means by which God forgives me. The ninth mark of faith is this. It is the means through which God saves us. Saves us. We won't go there. You could go there. I'm just going to cite one verse in Luke chapter 7. It is that beautiful incident when the Lord Jesus is in the home of a, of a wealthy man, a religious man, a respected man, and he's there for a banquet, a feast, and in the midst of it all, a sinner, a woman, we don't know anything more than her than that, enters into this feast, comes up behind the Lord Jesus, kneels at his feet, wets his feet with her tears, dries them with her hair, takes this precious ointment, oil, I don't know exactly what it was, pours it all over him. 
And the Lord Jesus looks to her and declares, just as he had declared to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And then he adds this statement, Luke chapter 7, verse 50. Your faith, woman, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Saved the poor woman from what? Saved her from what? From the wages of her sin. From the torments of hell. And from the clutches of the devil himself. As she fixed her faith on a very sure object, the person and work of the Lord Jesus, that faith became the instrument by which she received the Lord Jesus. And in receiving the Lord Jesus, was saved from condemnation. An old Puritan put it this way, Jesus hides our unrighteousness with his righteousness. That's good. It gets even better. Covers our disobedience with his obedience and shadows our death with his death so that the wrath of God can no longer find us. Can no longer find us. Faith, the means through which God saves us. Here's number 10. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Faith. Bears fruit. Luke chapter 6, pick it up in verse 46. The familiar portion, if you're familiar with it, in terms of Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is in Luke chapter 6, again, the 46th verse. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, that is Christ's words, Christ's commands, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. What point is the Lord Jesus making? What point does he repeatedly make during his earthly ministry? It is this. Yes, we are saved through faith alone. God forgives us our sins through faith alone. God justifies us through faith alone. Why? Because it is through faith that we embrace the Lord Jesus. It is through faith that we receive the Lord Jesus. It is through faith that we become one with the Lord Jesus. Becoming one with the Lord Jesus, he has borne the penalty for our sin, and God now sees us in Jesus' obedience, righteousness, justice. Having believed in the Lord Jesus, this is the point the Lord Jesus makes repeatedly, Having believed in him, we do become one with him. He who is life. Becoming one with he who is life means what? We come alive. And where there is life, there is what? 
there is fruit. Is that fruit the reason God saves us? No. Is that fruit, that obedience, the cause of God's mercy? No. Is that fruit, that obedience, meritorious in God's sight? Definitely not. We are saved through faith. But we have become one with the Lord Jesus. And because we are one with the Lord Jesus, we are alive. And where there is life, there is fruit. And Luke demonstrates for us in his gospel narrative that the two most significant pieces of fruit are what? Think back to the threefold response. The two most significant pieces of fruit, faith giving rise to fruit, what are they? Repentance and self-denial. Repentance and self-denial. I was five years old. Maybe I've shared this with you before. I cannot recall. Probably have but it's worth repeating. I was five years old and I was walking from my home to a friend's home and um, I began to believe. Five years of age is when I began to believe. Notice I did not say that is when I believed. For far too many people, faith is a moment, past momentary event. No, my friend, it is when you began to believe, and you continue to believe in the Lord Jesus. It began when I was five years old. How much did I understand of the gospel at five? Not, not a lot, right? Ray, parents were Christians. I'd been going to Sunday school as long as I could remember. I knew a little bit. What kind of awareness did I have of my sin? Enough, believe you me, even as a five-year-old. Not just because of how much trouble I used to get in, but because of how much delight I used to derive from the trouble others would get in. Uh I knew I was a sinner. And I knew I needed a savior. I did not understand much, but I fully grasped, understood, and embraced this. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in me, words of the Lord Jesus, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Right back to point number one. What was it? Not everyone has faith. The day is coming when the Lord Jesus will return. Will he find faith on the earth? Just lay that question aside for a moment, my friend, because it's not the most important question. The most important question is this. Will he find faith in you, our Heavenly Father? We do pray that you might show yourself strong, powerful, and merciful this day. Merciful to those unbelievers in our midst who do not believe in the Lord Jesus, have never turned from their sin and turned to you because of what Christ accomplished at the cross. And we pray that you might show yourself merciful to them today, removing the scales from their eyes, giving them eyes to see and to understand the beauty of the gospel. And may it indeed be made precious to them this very day. And for your people, show yourself powerful and merciful by enlarging our faith and enlarging our love for the Lord Jesus. We pray that with this you might be well pleased. We ask it for your glory, and in your Son's name we pray. 
Amen.